powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Please sit. Thank you. Thank you. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guests, Aaron Sloan and Kimbalina Gutierrez. They were great sports. And if you have not heard our in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 189, and we have a truly historic episode lined up for you today. In what will go down as a milestone in the history of the Derek Duvall Show, we have on the show the man himself, Gene Krantz. A living legend at NASA, Gene was the assistant flight director for many of the original Mercury missions before becoming flight director for many Gemini and Apollo missions, including Apollo 11, which landed the first humans on the moon. He is also credited with leading the team that returned the crippled Apollo 13 spacecraft astronauts safely back to Earth. This is a very in-depth interview. Gene will talk about growing up during the Great Depression, World War II, Korea, and he will walk us through the Kranz dictum, the incredible story of the moon landing, Neil Armstrong, Apollo 13, and so much more. At 90 years young, Gene is still incredibly sharp, and believe me when I say we could have talked for hours. So get comfy and enjoy this one as much as I did enjoy talking to Gene Duval Nation, please welcome to the show, calling in from his home outside of Houston, Texas, a living legend in the space exploration community, Mr. Gene Kranz. Gene, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duval Show. This is indeed a great honor to have you here in the studio. How is the weather out by you today? Well, uh, Derek, it's great to be with your show. Uh, where are you located? Because temperatures uh, generally start off in the uh, 90s and will be about 102 today. Well, we've been lucky here in Tulsa. We've actually had some very cool weather move through. So it's actually 78 degrees out here today. And normally this time of year, it's 105. <laughs> so I start my interviews off the same way as any other. And that is, you know, with the pandemic now coming to an end, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Actually, uh, I did not have, we did not have too many, uh, too many issues here. Our oldest daughter, we have uh, six children, five girls. And the oldest daughter is a uh, cardiac critical care nurse. And she got drafted to go down into the emergency room to address the COVID cases. So we uh, gently stayed up with our immunizations. In fact, I'm getting uh, going to get a booster shortly. 
because with the book coming out, I'm going to meeting and be meeting and greeting a, a pretty good bunch of people. So I want to make sure I don't get something and I don't pass something on to them. Fair enough. So every journey has a beginning. What was it like growing up in Ohio during the tail end of the Great Depression? Memories of Ohio are very, very, very limited right now because my uh, my father died when I was seven. We lived in the, uh, uh, what do we call the South End. When my father died, she uh, we didn't have any insurance. So she moved us out to the West Toledo area, which was right next to the uh, military uh, posts down there, the American Legion post, and they had the VFW. So we had the rumors and borders in uh, living in our house with mother. We had, I had two other sisters. She shoved uh, four of us into one room up there and the uh, remaining rooms in the house were basically military personnel fighting the battles and uh, over here in the air and uh, in the Pacific. So your father, you said he served in World War One, correct? Yes, he was a medic. He was a medic. You were about eight years old when World War II broke out. Do you have any memories of life in America during the Second World War? Uh, the memories are uh, pretty straightforward. We had the military personnel in the house, but I was a paper boy. Mm. And uh, paper boys in those days, we'd go down to uh, pick up the newspapers. We'd fold them up. We'd put them in our bags. And we were like the newscasters. Uh, we'd call out extra, extra, read all about it. Uh, do the little bombs, Japan, uh, uh, allies are invading uh, Europe, you know, so it was uh, really neat. And people would hang down. They got a lot of apartment houses out there. They hang down over the balcony and say, what's going on? So it was uh, it was neat being a, a piece of America's history from a standpoint of telling people the news of the day. And I would read the uh, the newspapers as I was folding them. I'd read all of it. I'd get, so I'd get a pretty good story. So I could go out and uh, let everybody know as I was going. I had about uh, 200 people I'd up and down the streets. But it was a marvelous time. Went to the uh, military uh, bond rallies down there, met uh, several of the aces. And then shortly after uh, World War II, uh, I expanded my uh, range of motion with my bicycle and uh, started hitchhiking to the air shows in Cleveland and Detroit. So basically, I, I had a good feel and a good touch for what was going on. Hmm. Now, what got you interested in space at such a young age? Uh, that's a that's a two-stage story. I read all the aviation pulp magazines, and they were very strong on the on the various uh, German rockets, the V1, the V2, etc. And uh, they had plans for taking and building one of these out of cardboard tubing. And we'd put two eyes on the on the rack and then we'd hang it on the clothesline. We had a CO2 cartridge and we'd launch a rocket down the uh, line where we'd hang up the washing. And the, when I got into uh, high school, my uh, junior high school term paper was the design and possibilities of a... Uh, uh, interplanetary rocket. I was going to get up to the moon. The problem was I didn't get them back home. I got them there, but I, I left them waiting for another smarter guy than I to figure out a way to get them back. Nice. Now you have an aeronautic engineering degree from St. Louis University Parks College of Engineering, Aviation and Technology. Was that a stepping stone to wanting to be a pilot or did you join the Air Force Reserve to learn how to fly? 
I wanted to be a pilot. The uh, many of the uh, soldiers, the airmen that lived in our uh, in our house, went through the Great Lakes Naval Air Training Center, and they were going on down to Pensacola and down to the aviation schools for the Navy. And uh, two of my teachers uh, determined that I had a pretty good aptitude for mathematics and physics and science and that kind of stuff. So they coached me for the Annapolis entrance examination. I passed the examination, got an appointment, but unfortunately I was working at uh, A&P, two jobs to support my mother at this time. The war was over and basically we had to get money in the house. And I was living in brownies and chocolate milk out there. And that wasn't conducive to passing the uh, physical up in Detroit for uh, entrance into the Naval Academy. So uh, I came and had to figure out a, a new way, not only to get to college, I wanted to go get one year in college, which was a shoe in almost a guaranteed opportunity to get into the uh, aviation cadet program in the Air Force. Tell us about your time in Korea. This was a uh, time in Korea. I had I had many. Uh, when I wrote my book, I had the fortunate thing about writing a book and publishing yourself. You can actually put the words in that have meaning to you. I, my previous book it was very heavily edited, and I think Fred Hayes found the same problem. But basically. Uh, it was a, uh, I had just been married three months. My wife was pregnant. I was flying the, the first of the real jet fighters, the F-86 Sabre, which is a MiG killer over in Korea. I was in a fighter bomber squadron. And uh, one of our initial deployments, we went up to Taiwan because we had a mutual defense uh, agreement between the United States and Taiwan. We flew uh, over the... Uh, uh, basically the, the ocean area between China and Taiwan. Uh, we came back and I flew in the uh, uh, close air support for the 7th Infantry. Uh, I spent the uh, best part of six weeks as a air controller for the uh, 7th Infantry. And uh, it was really a, a different world, but it was one that really... I would say made me a man because I had a lot of learning to do. I was just a young pup. I'd got through a flight training, went through college, but basically it was now to develop a sense of identity. And you get over there and you're thrown up in a barracks with a group of eight to 10, 12 people, tin building down there, no air conditioning, no heating. And you learn to survive. You learn to work together. You learn to, to live with people that were vastly different than yourself, all oriented towards a common mission. And uh, I became a flight leader over there, and I had three young airmen I was given, recruits, uh, just out of flight training. And it was really teaching them to fly, fight, and survive in a hostile airspace. So to me, it was it was a process of uh, a very strong drive to basically achieve, to become what I'd say, the best man I could be. You just described my entire career in the Navy, being thrown into a melting pot of different cultures. 
because like you said, I mean, I was, I'm originally from Great Britain. So not only to be thrown into people from California or to throw in people from Texas, New York and what have you to all of them coexist in this tiny little space. That is, that is exactly what it's like. You have to learn to coexist and all be driven towards a common goal, a common mission. So I exactly understand exactly what that's like. Yeah. One, one of the things that was uh, strange, I, uh, I saw the Top Gun movie and I saw the concerns I got when the guy lost uh, a crew member in his aircraft and that he carried it with him. And basically we lost uh, in my squadron, we lost five pilots during the tour over there. And uh, we'd celebrate, we'd uh, get together in the bar. We'd, uh, I won't say get drunker than a skunk, but basically uh, we would uh, let it all hang out and the next day we'd go back in and fly again. So it was just a question. We had a mission and the mission was to represent our country. And basically we were, we were five minutes flying time from North Korea. And uh, the seventh infantry that I was air controller with was basically the blocking force. If the North came South again. What does an interview with NASA look like? <laughs> that's learned by doing sort of like today <laughs> i mean it's really uh you really don't know what to expect but the uh thing that was very interesting i go back to the media in the uh 60s and they were highly professional they were as smart as a whip down there they had done their homework and they asked the tough questions and it was really a question of Basically, I had the responsibilities. I had to be capable of flying, fighting, and basically achieving whatever we set out as our objectives as a flight controller. Basically, we our guidance was basically, we were the first responders when the crew ran into trouble. And that's an interesting, interesting position to take because I think there you see the firemen, the military police personnel we have nowadays, et cetera. Uh, they have a mission to accomplish, and that is to protect the nation. And my, our job is to protect the crew. So the, the business of coming to grips as a flight director, flight director is empowered to take any actions necessary for crew safety and mission success. And this, this was sort of a carry-on from the time in Korea. You had a level of accountability that basically drove you in every aspect of the work and the job that you were doing. You made sure you were ready, that you were trained, you understood your mission, and then you went out and accomplished it. Same in the military and the same in mission control. You're, you ascended through the ranks quickly to assistant flight director for Mercury 7. What do you remember most about that mission? The challenge was, and, and I would look at it, after we finished the Mercury program and looking backwards, I was a flight test engineer on the B-52. And I had the responsibility for developing a, basically a fully qualified superb flight test team because we were doing a lot of first with that B-52 aircraft. When it came into the mission control environment, I was comfortable with the mission control room because I had operated out of a facility it's very similar to it at Holloman Air Force Base when you're testing, but I had a bunch of rookies. 
I had a bunch of what I'd say hired hands because there were no mission professionals when we started. We borrowed the engineers from the engineering workforce. And it was really a question of, I'd say, struggling with every one of the missions. I was sent down to the Cape to show you how far behind we were. I sat down, I was sent down to the Cape two weeks after I had joined NASA to write a countdown for the first launch. I had never seen a rocket. I didn't know the spacecraft, but I knew my way around town. So it was really a question of taking a bunch of rookies, and I was sort of their senior member there. And this was really the case all the way through Project Mercury. We were operating on a very narrow fringe in accomplishing every mission. Uh, John Glenn, we basically uh, had an indication that said the heat shield might have come loose. And we spent the entire time trying to figure out what are we doing about it, but we never told John, John Glenn. We thought he had a problem. Uh, Scotty Carpenter. Basically, we kept telling him to stop using fuel, stop using fuel. And basically, he was interested in experimenting and testing the spacecraft until finally it was out of automatic fuel. And basically, we had to get him home. And we were fortunate that we had a controller out at Hawaii that basically talked to Scotty after he, we shouldn't have had communications. He's out of UHF range there, but he kept talking. And fortunately, the the aberration in the atmosphere was such that Scotty hurt us. And we finally got him to start stowing everything up. And we got him to California. And one of my controllers, Ted White, recognized that this guy's going to be out of fuel. We got to get him in orientation. So he took some grease pencil marks. And Alan Shepard was sitting next to him. And he said, Al, I when I tell you to fire the retro rockets, do it because he's going to be enough of an attitude where he'll come in and re-enter. So it was really a question of not kidding the target point, but getting Scotty Carpenter down to the surface. Now you were flight director for the first EVA on Gemini Four. You know what was it like to run the show, knowing you were in command of the whole mission control that first time out? Ed White's EVA was uh, really mission first because uh, I was a rookie flight director. I was just ready to come on board, and I get called over to Chris Kraft's office. And when I got called over, I expected him to say, how are you ready to do your flight director job? And he says, no. He says, uh, what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to perform an EVA on this mission. But we got to keep it secret because the president hasn't approved of it yet. And basically, we're competing against the Russians to be the first to accomplish an ABA. So one of my first jobs was to come up with that. I selected a, a secretary I had who happened to be a rodeo rider. She rode in the Houston rodeo as a barrel racer. But basically, to get a very small team of people together and operate in secret, we'd shut down work at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we'd show back up at 5.30, and we'd plan the EVA. But it was really a, a wonderful opportunity. And this was true of almost virtually everything we do in space, to do something for the first time to stretch and see something work out. And all of a sudden, Ed White's out there floating around. And I say, my God, we got him out there. Now we got to get him back in. 
And uh, this was a challenge because the suit's inflated. There's a strap in the back end of the suit. And basically, you grab a hold of the strap and pull them part way in and then depressurize a little bit, pull them in a bit further. We finally got the hatch closed, and we were supposed to basically throw away all the stuff we didn't need anymore. But the crew didn't want to open that hatch again now that they got it closed. But that was that was America's entry into space. And it was done by it. I want to talk briefly about, about the people we had. The new book I've got, the first book I wrote was about missions and events. This book is about people. And when, when we came into the Houston area, my recruiting area, they set up recruiting areas for each one of the NASA centers to avoid competing for the same people. And I had people from the Great Plains. I had the ranchers. I had the farmers. I did not know it until I wrote the book. I had three Native Americans that were born in reservations up in the Dakotas that were came down to Oklahoma and went to a small junior college. But these were the kinds of people. In flight test, I learned to respect people with dirty hands. Well, these people had dirty hands and they were marvelous at the job. They had an incredible work ethic. And basically the book, none of the books had been written. We had to write them. We had to learn every job that we we're going to do and write every procedure for the first time. So this was a uh, almost a marvelous time to live and work in space because that brought what I call community. It brought team chemistry where people that became superb at their tasks and they taught the other. But as a result of that, the social chemistry developed. So it was a, a marvelous time to grow up and uh, and work. And these people, I had them all the way through to the early shuttle program. And they basically were doers. That's amazing. When did the waistcoats make their appearance? And can you tell my listeners the history behind them? The waistcoats had a, uh, I won't say uh, entry. Basically, all of the bosses that I had before an aircraft flight test in St. Louis when I basically I had Harry Carroll and basically his colorful bow tie and suspenders. Uh, the boss over in Korea basically had a set of holsters, pistols they carried, just like some of the movies. I went out to a flight test at Halliman and basically I had the great white hunter. He basically had a safari hat that he wore around here. So each one of these people had some tool instrument to basically establish their identity you know in the military you got bars on your shoulders you know the captains lieutenants etc well these people weren't in the military they were civilians but they had a form of identity and my wife made scarves for my pilots when i was over in korea and she came up with suggestion of my team color was white we chris Kraft was red john hodge an englishman was blue and I was the white flight. Some people called me the white blight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, but basically this was, this was her idea. And uh, it was interesting to see how uh, identity is born. Because one of the controllers that was sitting right next to me saw me put on this vest and he didn't know what was going on. So he called into some of the technicians, and all of a sudden, I am on every television and mission control. I'm in every television over in the press area, and I'm on every television 
up in Washington. And media loved that thing. I mean, this was something that that, that was total surprise and they would write about that was uh, really a blast. And uh, my wife made about 40 vests for each one of the missions. We had some of them were uh, celebration vests. That's amazing. So do you still remember the speech you gave the morning of the Apollo 1 fire? Yes, I do. I mean, I know, like I said, it was a very hard time for the thing, but your book is titled after that, the major part of that speech. Can you tell my listeners kind of like the the basic mood that was going on during the, that speech? I was uh, I was on console for the test preceding the test where the fire occurred, and I remained through the night and evening because we had a large number of communications problems. And I remained in mission control to do the countdown for the early part of the test the following day, which was what they called the plugs out test, where the air spacecraft would be totally on internal power, the batteries. I handed over to Chris Craft around noon, and I remained there for a couple hours and then went home because uh, my wife needed some help. And a neighbor who lived right next door came and knocked on the door and uh, basically indicated they had a problem out mission control where mission control was locked. So I rode the freight elevators to get up there. And I walked into a room that was uh, actually in shock. A few of us had flown and worked in Korea. We had done dangerous work. We'd seen people die. And this was a, uh, my average controller age was around 27. And uh, this was the first time they'd ever gone through an event of that type. And that evening, we went and closed down the mission control, secured everything there. And we went over to our local watering hole. And within a couple hours, the wives started coming, trying to get their husbands to go home. And then I had two days to uh, think about this event. And uh, Hodge had called, the English flight director had called, said we're going to have a all-hands meeting Monday morning. And when I was in flight test out of Holloman Air Force Base, I had a placard in my desk that said, aviation, unlike the sea, is terribly unforgiving of carelessness, incompetence, and neglect. And I was trying to find some way to get that same point across to my mission control team. We're in an auditorium in Building 30, which is right next to mission control. And that's how I started off my talk, because I was mad, I was angry, I was, I'd seen people that I knew and worked with. Ed White, the guy who did the first EVA, he had died there. Gus Grissom, we saw him uh, dear, darn near drown during Project Mercury, and we pulled him back from the water. And, you know, we, we were close to these people. And this was like leaving and losing a brother. And I had to get a commitment into the my people. Never again. We will never have a failure of this nature again. So it was I had to get into this, this mindset of my control teams. And I used the terms tough and competent. I tough, tough was basically 
basically accepting the responsibilities, absolute responsibilities for every bit of the work we do. Confidence, never finding yourself short in knowledge. And I said, these words are the price for admission to mission control. They'll be the words that we'll be thinking about the day that we land, Gresham, white and chaffy in the moon. And it worked. For these very young people I had there, they were changed that day. In fact, for your for your listeners there, this is no the statement of speech is known as the Kranz dictum. And it's really amazing. I'll go into uh, operating rooms and areas where first responders are, and I will find the Kranz dictum on their wall. Tough and competent. And it's uh, it still resounds today. If you go into mission control and see somebody wants to ask a question, they'll say, hey, how did tough and competent come about? Well, read the Kranz dictum. That's why I named my book Tough and Competent. That's incredible. It really is. There's a popular question when I tell people you're coming on the show. Um, a lot of people want to know is, can you still recite the go, no go procedure for Apollo after all these years? Yes, I can. Would you? <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's interesting. There are many go, no go procedures as we uh, started the, the uh, descent to the moon. This was probably... Everybody makes Apollo 13 is the mission that was the toughest. No, Apollo 13, we had time to think. Apollo 11 was going to the moon for the first time in front of the entire world with the team. One of my controllers, Steve Bales, it was his birthday. He was 27 years old that day, and he would be tested. We had a bunch of issues that we, we spent a lot of time uh, preparing for the mission, developing what we call mission rules. It's what do we do if this happens? And literally about almost a third of our total time in preparation for the mission and in training is exercising those mission rules. The problem was we had problems that we had rules for but the problem that we were faced was fast, very different. They made a modification at the Cape, which interfered with the pointing of our antenna that we use for communications. And there was one single ground rule I was assigned to make the decision for. Do we have enough data to continue? Because there is no crash recorder on the lunar module. Basically, all through this in preparation for descent and during descent, I had to say, we have enough data to continue. That was one problem. Second problem, the crew did not fully depressurize the tunnel between the command service module and the lunar module. And it was sort of like a pop gun effect. And this modified our trajectory. It moved our landing point about three miles down from a very nice smooth landing area to one that had uh, great big craters and rocks and everything else in it. And it also tilted the axis in the orbit. The third one was a bug that was in the computer that was known but not fixed. 
And this is a bug that basically related to the timing between the computer and the rendezvous radar. Well, the rendezvous radar wasn't expected to be on because the crew landing radar was on. But the crew had the rendezvous radar in a standby position. So all through the landing process, the computer was looking for inputs from the rendezvous radar. And it wasn't getting it. Basically, it would basically build up error messages in there until finally it would overflow. When it overflowed, we lost all data, radar, radar tracking, or the ground tracking, uh, basically voice and telemetry. And through this whole thing, I had to make decisions. Do we have enough data to continue? Sometimes we'd have only a few seconds, and we did. But we did, and we so we had the go-no-goes to start, start powered descent. And then through the descent, we had various go-no-goes we had to make. Basically, go-no-go to continue, which is about two minutes after we started. Then we had go-no-go that was related to, we got the landing radar telling the computer, yeah, what is the altitude that we are about? Then about halfway down, we make the go-no-go to give the crew to go ahead and land. So each one of these basically had a polling of the controllers, and we had sometimes just fringes of data. When we finally got down to the landing, however, we had landed in the crater-filled, boulder-filled site, and the crew had to fly around with a to find a good landing site. We would normally land with about 120 seconds of fuel remaining. But now I have a controller calling off. First thing you hear is low level. That says 120 seconds later. It's 60 seconds later, he says, 60 seconds. Then pretty soon it's 30 seconds. And about the time he was ready to say 15, we recognized the crew had landed. Now the whole world is, is, is celebrating, but we can't celebrate because now we have to make stay no stay decisions. Is it safe to remain on the moon? And we did the first one at two minutes. <laughs> Okay, then we did another one at eight minutes. And we we're still tied to our console at two hours until finally we made the final stay no stay. And the could, crew could power down the, the lunar module and they could proceed to get ready for an EVA. That was one we could celebrate. And it was, it was, it was uh, Chris Kraft, who was the boss, Mr. Flight Director, lead chief. He sent me an email. And it was, I wish I had, could read it to you right now, but basically it said, you know, we were incredibly lucky to have you in that position because without you, I think we would have aborted the lunar landing. <laughs> okay. And it's, so it's interesting, but I think of each one of the controllers that made that same decision. They're making decisions and feel they can attitude control and rendezvous radar and all these. These are kids. You know, and uh, afterwards, Steve Bales, his 27th birthday, before we started down, we had a quiet period in there where I had a smoke break right on the line, the crew's behind the moon. And I had to talk to my crew. I said, I will stand behind every decision you will make. We came into this room as a team and we will leave as a team. And then I used the term, Go to battle short. 
And this is where ground controller goes out and locks the control room doors. The recorders are set to flight speed and basically block all power breakers so we can't have a blackout. And this is, this is a time that we rehearsed many times in simulation. But when you do it for the first time in a real ass of God mission, every one of sucks air. And that's why I will stand behind every decision you will make. We came into the room as a team and we will leave as a team. And Steve Bale said that was the most important thing I needed that day. Is there, I heard, a, I've heard a story that said, basically he said, you lock the doors and we, it's, you, we either land, crash or abort. Is that what, is that, that what I heard? That, those were the only two options once we locked those doors. Yeah. 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 Land, crash or abort. Yeah. It's, that's amazing. Um, I do want to ask you, NASA's decision, was it Neil's performance in Gemini 8, the reason he was chosen to command Apollo 11? I don't know. I think that uh, fortunately there are two selections, I think, to John Glenn and the Neil Armstrong that were absolutely superb. Neil Armstrong always reminded me of a high school professor. <laughs> I mean, he was always soft-spoken, very seldom raised his voice, very thoughtful. You know, working with him in the Mission Roles Review he would never argue or disagree in a direction we were going to take. He wanted some time to think about it. Then he'd take that rule back to the simulator, run in the simulator with my training team and come back and say, okay, that's good rule. So I think he was very thoughtful. And to me, he was a damn good pilot. When I speak of Apollo 11 mission, basically I have a slide for the time he near killed himself in the lunar landing test vehicle out at Ellington Air Force Base, which was a modified, he had rocket engines, jet engines in there and a flying bedstead. And this is where they simulated the actual landing in a device that had sort of similar flying characteristics. And he lost some attitude control jets and this guy tipped over in his side and he ejected literally sideways his parachute opened, he had, I think, one swing and he hit the ground. And very shortly thereafter, the LTV crashed and started to burn. So uh, going down to the surface of the moon, I debriefed with Neil very closely. He was he was a pilot's pilot. After he was, we're making these go-no-goes, and roughly about... 20,000 feet, he should be out looking at the landing site through the landing point designation. But no, he's flying that spacecraft because he's had all these program alarms and he has no place to eject. Okay, he's going to land or he's going to have to abort. So he gets right down close until finally he took a look at the landing site and said, oh my God, this isn't what we expected. So find, find the landing site. And, and it's... it's uh, Interesting to uh, relive that occasionally. That's amazing. You know, when Neil reported that, you know, the eagle has landed, you know, which I think in my personal opinion is one of the greatest lines a human being has ever said, you know, what emotion do you remember feeling? I choked up, but I only had a second to choke up because I had a stay no stay decision to make. Right. I got very frustrated 
And in those days, we used to have to write all of our messages with number two H pencils. I had one in my hand. I slammed my arm down and broke the damn pencil. <laughs> and that got me loose because that was the words. And then in the viewing room behind me, the people started cheering and stomping their feet. And that was the emotion just was split second. But basically, it, it captured you. And then you got to get control back again. Uh, when Neil said that, it was it was uh, every controller we celebrate in my talk. We'll celebrate after the mission. I said, we'll celebrate this every day for the rest of our lives. And we do. We celebrate that. There are a lot fewer of us left, but we still celebrate. We know what uh, what we're doing. I was going to say to you, uh, we watched prior to you coming on the show, we wanted to do some, you know, catch up and research. We watched the Apollo 11 documentary that they did a couple of years ago. Uh, in my opinion, one of the greatest documentaries I think ever conceived by man. And I want to ask you, you know, documentary can only tell so much, but what was the emotions like when Neil and Buzz were walking on the moon? I think it was, uh, for mine, it was, it was intense relief because this is what we battled and fought. Uh, I had worked several EVAs uh, by this time. And frankly, the, our EVA technology was so primitive that we were almost like trying to hold them by their hands and carry them every step of the way. And it was only until we got into the later Apollo missions where the crew, the exuberance became, they'd hop along, you know, down the surface of the moon and occasionally fall. But basically it was, uh, my feeling was, get those darn lunar samples, then get back in the spacecraft and let's come home. <laughs> That's amazing. One of the questions uh, people want to ask you is, have you seen the film First Man? Yes, I did. What did you think of it? I think it was not reflective of the Neil Armstrong that I knew or his wife that I knew. I spent a lot of time with Neil and he was... He was so subtle in all of his feelings that it was always, you sort of got the feeling I was the luckiest man alive, done a lot of the kinds of things I did. So it was, it was just, he conceived, he never thought of him as a first. Mm. He just considered him as, as really the kind of guy that the first man I, I had sort of a uh, variety of issues with. Uh, when we restored mission rule, mission control, we found some 16 millimeter film that had yet to be exposed that was taken in mission control. And basically, we uh, converted it to a, uh, a video production. And we wanted to get the movie people to use some of that uh, during the movie. Because these were the actual film, what was happening as crew was going down to the surface. But the video quality was not sufficient for the people producing the movie, which made me matter to hell. And I had an opportunity to uh, speak up at the Smithsonian about uh, four months before uh, we celebrated a lunar landing. And I made a, uh, my own documentary where I uh, took uh, my mission roles, 
my voice track, my log, computer log, and the cruise log. And basically, as, as we were going through all of this trauma to get down to the surface, I played as close as I could synchronize what was happening in this silent film. And it was interesting to see this in IMAX, which really gave a feeling of another dimension to the words that I was saying. And I don't know, I, I used, we had a, uh, we uh, re-synchronized a segment of that film, the last three minutes, which I used as a recruiting film, and it was part of the, the documentary they made, which has got mission control, it's got uh, Buzz and Neil, it's got the view out the window, et cetera. And I don't know if you've got that, but that was a, a documentary I used for recruiting new members for mission control for the Skylab and subsequent programs. Marvelous. In fact, I just used it in, uh, I'm using it in marketing my book. That's amazing. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Gene Krantz. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right, Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated, and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podcasting Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podcasticaudio.com slash easy. Hello, Duvall Nation. Derek Duvall here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek Duvall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. Hey there, this is Chad from Larkin, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. 
You can find all of our releases on No Records out of Long Beach. That's K-N-O-W. Or you can find them on almost all streaming services. And we hope to see you around down the next gig. Cheers. Oh, Cunt and his comrades like lions at bay From South Dublin Union, poor death and despair But what was there often the invaders men saw All the dead khaki soldiers in Erin go bra This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. Hi, this is Glenn. And this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to The Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy. everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 189 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with conclusion of our interview with a living legend in the space exploration community, former NASA flight director, Gene Krantz. Apollo 13 will forever be tied to your name. For some, Apollo 11 is mankind's greatest achievement. For others, it's Apollo 13. I've heard arguments for both great cases can be made for both what do you remember when the service module exploded and how proud were you of your team for keeping it cool to keep both astronauts alive in such absolutely dire conditions the first five minutes was very frustrating because instantaneously when the crew started reciting all of the uh, indication cost and warning indications they had and we had the master alarm, and the crew reported master alarm. Uh, we'd seen these in previous missions before. Or uh, we'd have some kind of a power glitch, we'd get the master alarm. And immediately I thought, okay, uh, we got electrical problem, we'll put the crew to sleep, then we'll work the problem. And this lasted for about uh, 60 seconds. And then they had another controller come in and said, the crew reported a pretty big bang associated with that flight. And I remembered another controller back on the Apollo 9 mission when we undocked. We had a bang associated with it. Basically, we closed some of the jets. 
And then the next thing is he fight, I think, one of the jet uh, select valves has been closed. So now I moved into, well, solve it easy, put him to sleep, solve it easy, until now, we don't know what's happened, please move carefully. And I won't use the vernacular I would use, but basically we got something we don't understand. And then a level came along and started talking about we're venting something. That was when I was sort of angry at myself that I didn't catch on to this stuff earlier. Because we'd seen jet firings right on down the line. Now, we couldn't have done anything different about it. But basically, it was just a lack of, of recognition of the serious how serious this was. But once we got that, to me, it was very cool because I had I, I grew up with the lunar module team. I flew the first unmanned mission. I flew the first manned mission of uh, Apollo 9. And I flew the second manned mission, Apollo 11. So I had grown up with the constant, with the team on the lunar module. I had grown up with the spacecraft. I knew it intimately. So basically, I had trust in my engineering team, my controller team, that given time, we would find an answer. So I immediately got into the point of saying, okay, let's everybody settle down, get back on your consoles. Let's pay attention to what's going on. Quit your guessing. Don't make it any worse. We got the lunar module as, as our way home. So within literally a half hour, I had a plan in my mind that we would use a lunar module as a lifeboat. Uh, from then on, it was now a question of how. And I had another flight director, Glenn Lunny, sitting right next to me because of the time of the explosion. Uh, he was going to be handing over, I was going to be handing over to him as flight director. So without even much discussion, he went down to the trench, the people on the trajectory side of the house to find me some return to earth options because he knew that this was a return to earth problem. I knew that too. And basically came up here and within about 10 minutes, we had five different options. Two coming around with direct abort coming on the front side of the moon. The other three coming ar around the moon, but landing in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. So it was really a question of addressing the issues. And, and we had the fortunate thing, as I've done a lot of discussions about Apollo 11 and crisis management. Because as the first responders in spaceflight, there is a point where you know you got a deep, serious problem you got to work. So you have a crisis management plan, and there's a team on the console already designated to work that crisis. There's a place to report to to start working the crisis, and there's individuals assigned to come in and give you the aid you got. So basically, I had, before I even left the console, my team was forming up in what we call room 210, the data room. And basically, my job there, first one was to name the responsibilities. Arnie Aldrich is going to work all the procedures. John Aaron's going to work resources. And Bill Peters is going to provide oversight to see if we're missing anything. And those were the three. So it was, it was uh, uh, entirely different way it, it i it we didn't go casually about it 
but again, you have you see the movie Hollywood kind of stuff getting all stuff worked out. Right. The only challenges were building this checklist, which was enormous. Uh, we had to get the one for the uh, get home fast maneuver. And this is one where uh, Deke Slate and I, by that time, I was fighting a thermal problem because we we're concerned about the, uh, the spacecraft freezing up. And we had to do a rotisserie type maneuver. And then I had a bunch of scientists come in that are worried about uh, the nuclear cask we had on board. They wanted to put it into deep ocean. And then after that, it was get my time to get some, get some rest for my people then get going on the procedures because we had about 250 uh, steps on the reentry process we had to work on, which is pretty dicey. That's amazing. How you guys pulled that off? I mean, it's a feat of mathematics and engineering. It's no question about it. It's incredible in itself. Now, I had the great privilege of having Fred Hayes on the show a couple months ago, and he was telling me about the Hollywood inaccuracies of the film with the same name. Now, Ed Harris was nominated for Academy Award portraying you in the film. What are some of the things the film got right about your role and some of the things it got wrong? Well, I, th I think most, I think Ed Harris did a good job of portraying the kind of work we did. And I think this was true of the entire movie. Uh, one thing I didn't like was in the movie were the, my lunar module contractor is uncertain. He can't guarantee anything right or down the line. He's Hollywooding this thing up. At this time, the lunar module people are anchored part of this team. They're solid right in the middle of this thing here. Uh, there was no ambiguity. They knew their job. We trusted them. They trusted us. We knew they're going to go out and get it. Uh, the other one, which was uh, irritating, was when the procedures weren't coming into mission control, uh, Ed Harris kicked a uh, wastebasket in there to get those procedures in there. You never lose your temper in mission control. You cannot, because then that sets the stage for everybody else wondering what the hell's going on that we don't know about. I mean, this is the ultimate thing. Ed Harris and I never met, which was interesting. Really? Uh, he studied a video. I had done a video uh, for PBS and TVSI uh, called To the Edge and Back. And he studied that video. And he said, I got Gene Kranz. Now, at the end of this video, this was two days of recording. It was so utterly realistic that at the end, when we were finally done, and I saw this video, they had a crew coming down and say, what did you feel? And I said, oh, shit. That was my oh, shit moment on TV. <laughs> and it was recorded and carried there. And then I started crying. I mean, just the stress of going through that thing. One more. And Harris got it perfectly at the end of the movie. Sitting down, recovering and getting back out and then celebrating with his team. That was that was the one thing he got right. He did a lot right, but basically that was the one thing that uh, got me. One more thing about the movie, which is very interesting. Ken Mattingly. Ken Mattingly was not portrayed at all well in the movie. At the time that he's portrayed as getting waked up what's happening, we thought he was still going to get measles and we we're going to put him in the control room 
below, up down, down in mission control, we had two identical control rooms, one third floor and one second floor. Third floor was basically where we were flying the mission from. Second floor was basically where I went to. I could listen to the mission people. I, that was my, during the entire emergency thing, that was my anchor point. They could always find me there. And we were trying to figure out where to put Ken Mattingly. Where were we going to put Ken there? So I was sort of ticked off the way they portrayed Ken in the movie. The other thing was when we saw the uh, preview of the movie, Ken was sitting next to me. And it was interesting. They're getting ready to show this vest scene. And this, I slide down in my chair to the point where he, and he elbows me. And he says, it's okay. You can come up with air. <laughs> there's a, there's a line in that movie. I don't, like I said, I don't know if it's true or not and what have you, but I use the line in the movie all the time. And that's the square peg in a round hole. I use it. I use it religiously for any problem that come pretty much occurs in my life, and um, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know if it's a line that you've used in your life, but uh, it's a line that I've adapted to mine. It it was it was used. I'm trying to figure out some way. I think this was when one of the controllers went over at one of the press conferences, and they're trying to brief this conversion of the CO2 canister from the command service modules to fit into the lunar module. And as he recognized that, I think that was one, I think that might've been Liebergott or one of the ones that basically said like fitting a score peg into a round hole kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that was a, that was a good one-liner though. Good yeah. description. Yeah. I love that line. Now you're the first guest of the Derek Duvall show to have a presidential medal of freedom. Uh, what was it like to get that award? It was, it, first of all, it was, it was uh, a total surprise. But it was a, uh, the kind of recognition that all of the people, because it wasn't just me, it was my entire team. It was the engineering support I had. It was the contractors right on down the line. I'll tell you one more story about the Presidential Medal of Freedom when we finish here. But basically it, it was, uh, I think an honor where they recognized the working level devils as opposed to the astronauts and the people always get the recognition. And basically because this went back to uh, all of the people, the brain trust we had, we had in my book, my new book, Tough and Competent, basically I do spend a little bit more time talking about Apollo 13, not the mission, but the various team efforts and the various locations in Apollo 13 and uh, the people that were really helping, making good decisions. Uh, this is, I think, recognition that was uh, very well deserved and uh, I think it very well received. The Presidential Medal of Freedom was basically up on the ninth floor at the Johnson Space Center. They have, this is where all the heavies are directors, deputy directors, staff, right on the line. And they had this presidential medal of freedom in a display box there. It had been there for several years. Well, when we restored mission control, a battle there, we started saying, hey, where the hell is presidential medal of freedom? Nobody knows where the presidential medal of freedom is. Well, basically when they renovated that part of the building, 
they took a lot of stuff and just put it in a box, moved it into storage locations, and we had to find the storage location for the Presidential Medal of Freedom. <laughs> Not only did they have the Presidential Medal of Freedom, all these certificates that were supposed to be handed out to the people. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, right, right now I'm at a, uh, I've, I've, uh, the two last things I'm going to do before I move into the hereafter myself and Ed Fendel, who's my go-to guy, we're going to restore the visitor's entrance to mission control. We restored mission control and fought that battle and won it. Now what we want to do is it make it fitting to the job done by the mission control teams. Uh, two years ago, we built a whole bunch of beautiful black granite benches outside the visitor entrance with the insignias, the mission control insignia I got here right around the line. So that's the beginning entrance. But now we want to get the real entrance set up with sort of a brass portrait of Chris Craft in there. And we want to put the Presidential Medal of Freedom in there. We got several other things we got in there but we're still fighting that battle but we will win it that is that is our last effort and i got a beer party this thursday trying to get somebody convinced to step into that job that's amazing so how disappointed were you in the cancellation of apollo it was devastating it was uh in fact uh, it's uh lta8 which was one of the test articles is hanging overhead in Space Center Houston. There's another one that up at uh, Bethpage uh, for the Grumman facility. There were three real lunar modules that were left that could have gone to the moon. And every time I look at that thing, and the thing that's frustrating is people walk underneath it, they never know what they walked underneath. But that is a real lunar module that should have been taken to the surface of the moon and Fred Hayes would have been the lunar module pilot on that thing. It was a bad decision. It was a bad decision. It was, you know, there's some point where conservatism, I don't know why they made it. It was, it was money. It was a variety of other things. We didn't always use money. But basically, I think they were concerned that we we're running closer and closer and closer to the edge, doing more and more difficult missions. You know, when you go to the Valley of Tyrus Lithra, that's about as tough as it gets. But that spacecraft worked. But some of the other ones didn't work so well. We had problems we had to face in 12 and 13 and 14. And so I think it, it was, to me, it, it was it was like taking, taking a wound and ripping it open. Every time I and I see that LTA-8, Every time I walk into Space Center Houston, I'm going to have a book signing there. And every time I do a visitor's tour in there, I make sure they look up overhead when they walked into that room. Uh, what are your thoughts on SpaceX, Blue Origin, and the Artemis Project? They're doing what they should be doing. Uh, they're taking, and what I would say is uh, capturing and using and making the near-Earth environment accessible. I think that they are developing the capabilities that will allow us to go further into space. I just finished a uh, interview 
for the local newspaper where I comment on the business business model. And I ask basically the question of who is in charge. Uh, RMS is a program that is vastly more complex than that which we went to the moon with. They've got more players involved. The integration of Apollo was probably the greatest challenge we faced. And in fact, I look at the guy responsible for integration of Apollo. It was right after Apollo 1, George Lowe recognized the challenge that would be faced. And he got Chris Kraft to assign somebody to do that job. And the guy's name was Bill Tyndall. And I did a long note of him in my book. In fact, Bill was so valuable that when the day of the lunar landing came, he was up in the viewing room. And I had him come down from the viewing room and sit right next to me at the console for the landing. I think that the success in assembling the International Space Station, keeping it going, provided a model, but not necessarily the right model for going back to the moon. Many challenges out there. And I think all of these SpaceX and all this, they have yet to uh, exercise and be tough and competent when they have that first loss of crew. Hmm. I went through three of them, plus five pilots over in Korea and one or two at air shows. But the fact was is that I've lived in that environment and it's going to require a different psyche for the team the day they go down to the lunar surface. All right. So we've talked about it off and on through this interview, and you have written a new book, Tough and Competent, Leadership and Team Chemistry. What inspired you to write this book? This, I'm glad you asked this question. I started this book very shortly after I finished my first book because I had lived in a world of great leaders. I started off with my bosses and flight tests, those that led me over in Korea, and basically those that guided me in the early years of space. And I went, and fortunately, I interviewed them. I got together with the people that taught me to fly, the guy who got me into the fighter weapons school. I talked to my Harry Carroll and Ralph Saylor, my flight test bosses, Chris Kraft, Sig Schoberg, and all these people. So I had this recorded. And I wrote the story, but it was an angry story. Okay, and I, I looked at it and said, is this the way you want to go out? Uh, because the final years of my NASA, for many of us, uh, we did not have the leadership with the qualities of the earlier years. And uh, I won't say they led us astray, but basically a large number of good people went to find different jobs. So I did. I decided I wasn't going to write that book. So then I tried it again, probably about four years ago, 
And I hired a ghostwriter because I was busy. I was flying air shows and doing other things. I hired a ghostwriter to write it. Very good one, Todd Brewster. And Todd did a good job. But we wrote a proposal, put it in, and publishers came back and said, oh, everybody, when they retire, uh, basically want to write about all their leadership lessons. And so I spent a lot of money doing that, had to pay the ghostwriters, people write it on the line. It sort of made me angry. But I looked at what was written. It was over-edited. It was too soft. So the first stage of the book was too hard. Second one was too soft. So now I decided I'm going to write the book I want to write. I self-published. And I think this is the way to go for Fred, I think, to a great extent, tried that. But unfortunately, he had an editor that didn't did some editing, maybe it didn't need to be edited. And basically in the process of doing this though, I had been writing for about six months and I found myself repeating things that I had said before. And then I looked at some notes I had from the 20th anniversary of Apollo 13. And this is where a controller by the name of Arnie Aldrich probably one of the finest I ever had. He became the, the director of the shuttle program and he ran the program. He made a comment on Apollo 13. He said it was as tough a test as could be conceived and put to flight control. If there was any weakness, the team would have crumbled. The teams dealt with it. There is no way that you could have a team stand up the way we did. We knew we had it. It was all built in as we had been working on it for years. Sardi was one of my branch chiefs during the uh, Gemini program. He's the branch chief in the Apollo program. And he did a lot of work, but basically he was the guy that wrote all the procedures. He was my go-to guy for a lot of things. And I picked up this theme of team chemistry and I started reading about team chemistry and I found a great book that was uh, written on uh, lady, lady sports writers, writers, writer. she I think has 17 awards from the sports writers group. It talked about team chemistry and it talked about the science and soul and basically said, I said, my God, I've seen this. As a pilot, I've seen it in flight test. I've seen it in mission control. I've seen this all through my life. But I got to find some words to put it on paper and make it sensible. Uh, so that's uh, basically uh, what got me really on track and really has taken off. I've got marvelous uh, reviews from aviators, flight test people. Fred Hayes did one. Just great, great, great reviews. It's it's really a team book. That's amazing. So for those who have been privileged enough to read it, what has been the reaction to it so far? I got one if I could get it. <laughs> this, was, this was in a uh, review that was done uh, in the paper this uh, past Sunday. And I like the words so much that I think it might be... Uh, this, was, this was done by... Uh, Andrew Dansby, who is the uh, Chronicle reporter in books and articles and all that kind of stuff. And he says, leadership books 
are to Goodwill's bookshelves as a family reunion t-shirts are to its clothes rack. <laughs> but Tough and Competent offers something different than those written by CEOs and their experiences with capitalism. Kranz's book emerges from an unwavering sense of accountability with stakes higher than those involving investors. It's pretty damn good. Yeah. Yeah. But basically, and I that's sort of the same theme I got for everybody that's got it. I got uh, in, uh, uh, Sport, who basically is the CEO of the uh, Aviation Hall of Fame, worked with her, worked with Hoot Gibson, lots of other people. It's amazing. So as we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question. Gene, what do you like to do for fun? How do you like to relax? <laughs> Got several things, but this this drove uh, my people crazy. I used to grow experimental roses. Really? I uh, basically, uh, I don't know where I picked it up. or I had the hobby right on the line, but basically I still have uh, gardens today. I raise and get, I got probably one of the best in the street. But basically, I uh, was interested in roses. So I applied to the Jackson and Perkins Company, which is out in western, uh, gee was right below Washington, Washington State. I don't, not Idaho. Oregon. Uh, but basically, uh, for uh, some test roses, I wanted to volunteer to do rose testing for them. And uh, they said, gee, this is great because you live in a part of the country. We want to find out disease resistance, fluorescence, fluorescence, how they smell right or not on the line, where they grow right on the line. And I had rose gardens down here that made me a hero to all the secretaries at work. I would bring in bundles of roses and they would love these things. I'd give them to secretaries walking up the stairs. So that was hobby one. The second hobby was I had a kidney disease. I was over-medicated. Unfortunately, one of the NASA doctors basically uh, guided me to solve the problem. And I had what they call membranous glomerulonephritis. I lost the majority of the kidney function. And uh, the medications I was taking is under massive doses of steroids right around the line. And I became very, this is a very provocative with people who wanted to talk to me at work. And my secretary was the one who said it's a good day and a bad day. So they'd say stay out of the office right on the line. But uh, in the process of doing this, I had to take up a hobby because I was intolerant of sunlight. So I picked up baking. And I baked all kinds of breads basically specializing in sourdoughs. And I had all the history of all the sourdoughs. One of our daughters, we have five girls. One of our daughters is a uh, world-class triathlete. And she went over to Hawaii for the Ironman over there. And when she was, she was, she was training out in California. And uh, basically, uh, they do this carbon loading right on the line. So basically, they were getting me interested in making high-energy, uh, low-residue uh, bridge for them. So I'd make breads for them, send out the team. So that's another thing. So basically, I've done uh, all kinds of funny things. But uh, basically, uh, 
my real passion is still aviation, but unfortunately, I had to get out of the business due to heart problems. Uh, so, uh, Gene, I, as much as I want to keep doing this, I am my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? I would say risk is the price of progress. If you're not risking, risking, you're standing in place. Uh, you're marching. You're just making noises there. Uh whether it be if within a family, whether it be schooling, whether it be testing, whatever you're doing in life, uh, be able to take that step. How, how did I get this? Uh, I had a flight instructor. Uh, he's in my book, uh, Wendell Dobbs. And uh, you never get angry at your flight instructor. And I popped off at him. And I said, I pounded the table and three other students there looked at me saying, what the hell is he doing? Because you never do that to your flight instructor. I uh, says, I'm doing my best. And he says, you think you are doing your best, but you're not even close to it. You have more capability than any student I have ever had. I am going to demand your best. And from that day forward, my flight test and my instruction was bloody. I mean, it was it. Well, the thing was, I graduated as a distinguished pilot graduate. I got one of two slots to the fighter weapons school, and I flew the best and fastest airplanes in the world. So it was really a question of accept the challenge and make the drive, make the decision to be the best. Love it. Amazing. Tough and Competent Leadership in the Team Chemistry is being released on August 15, 2023, and is available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your books online. Gene, you are a hero to many, and as far as I'm concerned, a living legend. I am so honored that you agreed to come on this show, and you will. this will go down as a highlight for not only the show, but for my personal life. So, Gene, thank you. This has been a real honor. Well, this is this has been uh, this has been a lot of fun. I I did a lot of preparation. I did a lot of notes, but I didn't look at one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but but I'm ready for the next show that I'm going. I don't have any. The other thing is, I have little arrows, so I always look to what I'm speaking here. Nice. There's nice. one. Of, there's one of the arrows. <laughs> Gene, thank you. This has been amazing. Have a good one. I never wanted it to end, but just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 189. They say never meet your heroes as they never live up to your expectations, but Gene met every single one of them. I was completely blown away with just how incredibly sharp that man is and the way he tells his stories with such passion, you can tell he knows he has been privileged to live the life he has. Gene, thank you again from the bottom of my heart. I will take this one to the grave with me as a highlight in my life. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode, especially this one? 
I truly hope you have. So please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. And if I don't see a review about this episode, <laughs> this could be some problems. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there. And we have everything without a logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner at the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tee Public. And once again, we want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, we need to get people excited about space again. Artemis 1 was just the beginning. SpaceX has been doing amazing work, but we need to get kids and young people excited about space again as they are the future pioneers of the sky. How do we do that? Well, I am open to ideas. No star, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.